A bit of spoken word from an academic nerd who just wants to be heard. On this topic, we can be a bit myopic toward our present position, but please listen. I'm afraid I admit to share the shame of my story, but it's, I hope, for his glory. When one speaks on the divide, we think inside, not again, when will this end? I'm not a racist, on what do you base this? But please hear me out without defense, though my words may be tense, because there's much more at stake than a politically correct game. It's Jesus' name we proclaim. We bring him fame or shame. End of spoken word. I know what you're thinking. Don't quit your day job. I won't. You know what what buyer's remorse is. Buyer's remorse is when you purchase something and regret the decision. There's such a thing as preacher's remorse. It's when a preacher agrees to preach and then regrets the decision. When I was asked to speak on the topic of racial reconciliation, uh, I got real excited real fast, too fast. And then I realized that no one who speaks on the topic ever wins friends. Some of you will think, I didn't say enough. I didn't go far enough. Some of you will think I went too far. So my initial yay turned into an uh uh-oh as I got closer to this event. I knew I was in trouble when uh, a sweet 70-year-old woman and I got into a conversation. We were having a meal together, and uh, I tried to start some friendly conversation about the church's role in racial reconciliation. And I suggested that because the church has been relatively silent on the issue, um, politicians have picked up the mantle and more often than not created a wedge instead of a bridge. Well, she got angry with me and uh, uh, began to tell me how white men are not getting jobs because they're white and they're viewed as villainous and ignorant when they may not at all be that way. And I looked straight at her, and I said, that's exactly how ethnic minorities have felt for generations. Misunderstood, falsely accused, stereotyped, judged. If I could read the bubble of thought above your head, You know, the stuff you think but don't dare say? I wonder what I'd find there. Oh, enough about racial reconciliation already. We're so past slavery and discrimination. Sure, groups like the KKK and the New Black Panthers exist. But that doesn't happen here. We are not diabolical racists. But I wonder if some of us are maybe covert racists without even realizing it. I want to be the first to admit this morning that I am a recovering racist. And I don't think I'm alone. I'm also very judgmental. So when someone stands to speak on this topic, my defenses go up real fast. If the person is black... We assume they have an axe to grind. 
And if they look like a well-to-do black person, we assume they have no idea what it's like to be ghetto, that they've had academic and economical uh, advantages that most of their ethnic group have not had. If the person standing up to speak is white, my defenses go up even faster. I say things to myself like, what can a privileged academic silver spoon-shaped white mouth say to shed light on this issue? As you can tell, I have real issues when it comes to this issue. I do. So why speak on the topic of racial reconciliation when it's a landmine of misunderstanding? When it's dangerous, sensitive, some would say useless? Because God told me to. Secondly, because my conversion experience is wrapped up in this topic. And finally, because there's so much more at stake than I think we realize. So I want to look at the issue, not from a political perspective, but from a biblical theological one. So now we'll get into the sermon. In order to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told in Luke 10... Uh, we have to understand why Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So here's a two-minute history lesson on the issue. In the 8th century B.C., uh, the Assyrians, the Gentiles, captured Israel, the Jews. And in time, the Assyrians and the Israelites intermarried, and their offspring were called Samaritans. They were half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. In the 6th century B.C., uh, King Cyrus of Persia allowed Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. The Samaritans there welcomed the Jews and wanted to participate with the Jews in the rebuilding project. This is in uh, the book of Ezra. But the Jews didn't want the help of half-breeds, so they rejected the help of Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans were offended that they couldn't help in the rebuilding of the temple. So they made life and the rebuilding project very, very difficult for the Jews. That's captured in the book of Nehemiah. Things got really bad, and eventually the Jews went their way to worship in the south in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans went their way to worship in the north at Mount Gerizim. It was a classic case of my church is better than your church. My rabbi is cooler than your rabbi. And they would prank each other. It's kind of like, think Indiana University and Purdue on prank week. That's kind of how it went. Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote during the time of Jesus, the first century, uh, said there was an occasion where Samaritans defiled the Jewish temple by placing uh, human remains there. So it was bad. Jews hated Samaritans. I also need to point out what Jesus doesn't make real explicit. The guy going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who, uh, who gets beat up, stripped naked, robbed, left for dead, is a Jew. The fact that he was up, uh, coming from up in Jerusalem means he was at the temple. He was worshiping in the temple. It wasn't Samaritan. He was Jewish. And he comes down the road of Jericho, which was known as the way of blood. Lots of bad people did lots of bad things on that road. And he's beaten up, he's stripped naked, 
And it's important that Jesus said that because the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan who walked by the naked guy, because he was naked, they could tell he was Jewish because one of the signs of being Jewish was circumcision. Sorry for the image. Take it up with Jesus. But they could see that. He was naked. He was Jewish. Jewish priest passes by, sees a fellow Jew in need, does nothing. Jewish Levite comes by, sees a fellow Jew in need, does nothing. And then a hated half-breed, a marginalized minority, Samaritan, does for the Jew what the other Jews did not. Now, you have to realize that when Jesus told this parable, he told it in the hearing of Jews, not Samaritans. And he's making the Jews look like goobers, and the Samaritan is the hero. I imagine sitting down uh, at Thanksgiving with my Italian family and friends all around and telling the story this way. There was an Italian guy named Tony who was leaving the Italian market and got beat up by a bunch of hooligans. And along comes an Italian Catholic priest but he doesn't help the Italian guy. And then the Italian guy's uncle and his godfather walks by and doesn't help him either. And then an African-American guy or a Hispanic guy or a Native American guy or a Chinese guy walks by and does for that Italian victim what the Italians would not do. If I told that story in the presence of my Italian family and friends, some of them would hit the roof. Imagine telling that story in your context. Maybe you're with a bunch of Republicans, and you tell a story about a good Samaritan named Nancy Pelosi who saves Donald Trump. <laughs> or, or if you're with Democrats, the good Samaritan is Ben Carson who saves Chuck Schumer. Whenever this parable is preached, at least when I've heard it preached and even preached it myself, almost always we're asking the listener to take the perspective of the Good Samaritan and offering a handout, some help to someone in need. And that's a viable interpretation, definitely. Uh, Jesus wants us to see like the Good Samaritan, pass the nose on our face to the needs of others and help them. To get our nose out of our phones, to stop worrying about likes and shares and friends and followers and roll up our sleeves and meet the needs of others in the name of Jesus. Discipleship 101. But I think Discipleship 201 is actually getting us to see ourselves from the perspective of the needy Jew who looks to a marginalized minority for something he needs to be taught by, to be informed by, to be illumined by a half-breed Samaritan. And if you think my interpretation is off, realize that the only other time in the Gospels when a Samaritan shows up is in John chapter 4, when Jesus is in a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And she's shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would speak to her, a Samaritan. And remember, Jesus did not take the position of the good Samaritan offering 
to help her to meet her needs. First, Jesus took the position of the needy Jew. Before he offered her living water, he asked her for a drink, empowering her to meet his need to help him. Who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is not only the person not like you who most needs you. Your neighbor is the person not like you you most need. And I suppose my conversion story uh, conditions me to read this parable not from the perspective of the good Samaritan, the hero, but from the perspective of the needy Jew. I grew up in Philadelphia, born and raised. Anybody from Philly in the house? They probably wouldn't let you in the school. Uh, my neighborhood, my high school was very racially divided. It wasn't just a black and white divide. It was a, in fact, uh, the biggest rivalry for me in high school, the Italians, were the Irish. Any Irish in the house? And you didn't venture on to somebody else's turf. If you were Irish, you didn't go into an Italian neighborhood. If you were Italian, you didn't go into a Vietnamese neighborhood. It was bad. And I discovered that racism is deadly. By the time I was 16, I was a high school dropout alcoholic. I was drinking lots of beer, sometimes smoking pot on top of it. And uh, when I was drunk, I was stupid. Most people who are drunk are. I was really stupid. I remember one occasion when uh, I was drunk and a group of uh, Vietnamese kids were walking by our neighborhood and I crossed the street, kind of got in their face and mocked their language. One of the kids pulled out a little silver gun, put it to my temple, and I was so drunk, I just kept mocking him still. On another occasion, a black kid and two girls, black, walked by our neighborhood, and uh, for no good reason at all, I threw a large garbage can at him, humiliated him in front of the girls. I was an idiot. And then it happened. Uh, I was really drunk and had smoked uh, some pot on top of it. And uh, a guy of another color was walking by our neighborhood, and there was a white girl in front of him. And we, are, we had told ourselves he was harassing her, but he wasn't. He was just taking a walk. My friends dared me to do something, and so I ran across the street and from behind hit the guy in the face uh, with all I had. He ran. My friends laughed. I chased after him. Uh, when he saw my friends weren't coming, he stopped in the middle of the street and just put up his hands. And when he did, uh, I went to throw a punch. And I was so drunk, I didn't see the knife in his hand. And he stuck it four inches in my side and collapsed my lung. And at first, I didn't feel anything. I was so inebriated. And then, uh, then I staggered into the car and looked down and saw that my white shirt was now blood red. My friends got me to the hospital that was just a few blocks away quickly. Uh, obviously, I made it. But I realized that racism is deadly. Racism on top of addiction is really deadly. I wasn't going to see my 21st birthday unless something changed. 
I've really debated whether or not I would share that with you because uh, i got to live here. And I'm embarrassed by that. I don't want you to view me today based upon my regrettable yesterday. But I had to tell you the underbelly of my story so that you could appreciate the beauty of the Christ who entered it. Here's where the, comedy, uh, the tragedy becomes comedy. Both of my parents had heroin addictions. They came to Christ and sobriety through a ministry called Teen Challenge, Christian Drug and Alcohol Rehab. And I figured if it worked for them, it could work for me. So when I was 18, I checked myself in to the Syracuse Teen Challenge. And I walked in the door, and I saw uh, the guys who lived in the house, 15 of them, in a group session in the living room. And I counted. Seven black guys, five Hispanic guys, three white guys. I wasn't good at math being a high school dropout, but I could tell I was the minority for the first time. And I thought to myself, we're going to kill each other. We've got to live together for a few months, eat together, work together, share bedroom space, share bathrooms. It's not going to work. And then I quickly discovered it didn't matter whether the person next to you was black or brown or red or yellow or white. We were bound together against a common enemy, addiction, brought together by a common king, Christ, on a common mission, sobriety. I entered Teen Challenge as the Jewish victim lying naked and half dead on life's Jericho Road. And the good Samaritan that saved a wretch like me was a community full of diverse people I was culturally taught to hate. This is not a story about how I overcame racism. This is a story about how reconciliation overcame me. That diverse community was a converting ordinance for me that made me believe in a God I could not see but felt was real. So now I have a two-scar sermon. I have a stab wound and a surgical wound where they put in the tube to inflate my lung. These twin scars remind me that racism hurts, but reconciliation heals. God turned this racist into a reconciler. Before I came to be a professor at Wesley Seminary, I pastored a church in northeastern PA that fought the demon of racism head on and sought with passion for reconciliation. happened to Peter. Peter was a racist Jew who believed all Gentiles were inferior. And then he has this weird vision of a sheep coming down from heaven with unclean animals, and God leads him into the house of a Gentile. And Peter goes in Acts chapter 10, and a Jew, Peter, is standing in the home of a Gentile, and he says this, I now perceive how true it is that God does not show partiality, but accepts all people from all nations who fear him and do what's right. It sounds like Martin Luther King Jr., 
who said, I have a dream of a nation where people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Happened to Paul, a racist Jew, who started to preach about the importance of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and and he got himself in hot water. But the hot water was baptismal for him. He said, we have, as the church, 2 Corinthians 5, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Think about the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Unity in diversity. When we unite in our diversity under the banner of love, we reflect the nature of the Trinitarian God. Racial reconciliation reveals God. Think about Jesus' prayer in John 17. He said, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be brought to complete unity so that the world might know that you love them and have sent me. Think about the historic church. It was the church that sought for the abolition of slavery. It was the church that fought for the equality of women. It was a black Baptist preacher named Martin from Georgia who got the civil rights ball rolling. The church has not been perfect, but she has been at her best when she's engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. If you're here and you're thinking what I once thought, Can't we just get back to gospel issues? (laughs) You know, enough about PC. Let's get back to JC. I would say that you really haven't read the New Testament. And you really don't know the heart of God. Because here's what's at stake. The nature of God is revealed. And the mission of God fulfilled. When diverse people are reconciled not only to God but to each other. God has not given us the ministry of passing out tracts. God has not given us the ministry of potlucks and hymn sings. God has not given us the ministry of finding the coolest uh, uh, skinny jeans wearing, hipster beard sporting worship leader. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what's at stake. So our our gospel is authenticated by our capacity to love people not like us. That's the so what. Here's, Here's the now what. How do we apply this? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Incarnational empathy. That's where we go. Incarnational empathy is the spiritual grace the capacity to put ourselves in someone else's shoes so that we think what they think and we feel what they feel so that we're moved to act on their behalf. I think about uh, John Howard Griffin, a white guy from Texas. He wanted to incarnationally immerse himself in the experience of African-American men. So, in the 50s, He went to his dermatologist who helped him become black. He actually turned his white skin black somehow. I don't know how. Shaved his head, looked black. 
traveled in the segregated South, Mississippi, Georgia, and the Carolinas, as a black man. Did this for six weeks. And he experienced all kinds of oppression and discrimination and racism. It was horrific. And he wrote about it in a book called Black Like Me. You can buy the book. It's a movie, too. That's incarnational empathy. It's putting yourself in someone else's shoes so that you think what they think and you feel what they feel and are moved to act on their behalf. But that was just a six-week venture. Here's one better. God wanted to know what it was like to be human. He wanted to incarnationally immerse himself in the angst and the pain of the human condition. So God took on human flesh, blood, and bone to become one of us and one with us. And it wasn't just a 33-year venture, actually. Because in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends, the angel says, you'll actually see him come back in the same form you saw him go. That means... There is to this day a first century Palestinian Jew seated at the right hand of God interceding for you because he knows what it's like to be you. The implications of the incarnation are with him to this day. The application is to embody the incarnational empathy of Jesus Christ in our relationship to the other, our neighbor. The good news is tomorrow during the day of courageous conversations, we get to flesh this out. My goal today was simply to rescue the topic from the hijacking of the political and remind us that this is biblical and theological. I hate racism, and yet I I battle it internally. And sometimes I'm tempted to hate racists until I realized what Martin Luther King Jr. said about how the image of God marks not only the oppressed, but the oppressor. He said, because of the image of God, the worst segregationist can become an integrationist. (laughs) If the image of God is really in us, if the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in us, then the ministry of reconciliation is not possible. It's probable. 